0: This podcast is sponsored by Position Green. To be an insider, you can subscribe to the Green Insider podcast, powered by eRenewable, wherever you get your podcasts from, and please leave us a five-star rating.
1: Welcome to the Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Each and every podcast host, Mike Niemer, will bring you energy experts to help you better understand the renewable and sustainability space education's important to us because it's important to you, the listener. Now, here's Mike Niemer. Welcome in to another edition of the Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. I'm your host, Ron Culver, and with me as always, CEO Mike Niemer. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, the chairman and CEO of the metals company, Gerard Barron. But before we dive into this conversation, let's hear from COO and Niemer for this very important message.
0: Position Green helps companies build resilient and sustainable organizations. Position Green has a unique combination of ESG software, advisory, e-learning, and assurance that drives sustainability success and empowers positive change. Visit positiongreen.com to learn more.
1: Thanks, Ann. And now here's Mike with Chairman and CEO of the metals company, Gerard Barron. Welcome to the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I'm Mike Niemer, and I have a very special guest on today the Chairman and CEO of The Metals Company, Jared Barron. Jared, I see that you've uh, been the Chairman and CEO since 2017. Welcome to our show. I know you have a lot of interesting things to tell our audience based on the preliminary talks that you and I have just had.
0: Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with you uh, today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I'm really excited to have you on Episode 207, and... What I'd like to start with is introduce yourself truly to the audience, give us a little history on yourself and bio, what led you to the metals company, and then a little bit about the metals company.
0: Sure. So I was born in Australia, started my first company uh, at university, and have been lucky enough to build uh, a number of global businesses. And I first took an interest in ocean metals back in 2001 as an investor in an enterprise and, you know, it hadn't even occurred to me that the oceans were filled with metals, and but it did occur to me that surely it would be less impactful from an environmental perspective to be getting metals from the ocean than some of the things that I'd been witness to with land-based mining. And so as that project went on, it was focused on seafloor massive sulfides, not what we're focused on, which is polymetallic nodules. Um, we floated that company and I was I exited actually because I'd learned about polymetallic nodules I realized that there was a bigger opportunity and that was in the form of these nodules that precipitate the metals out of the seawater and the sediment so in 2011 uh, originally it was called deep green metals uh, was established and we later changed the name to 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 the metals company and Its pure focus is on picking up these polymetallic nodules that sit off the coast of Mexico in the Pacific Ocean, 4,000 meters below sea level, but they literally lie on the ocean floor like golf balls on a driving range. So I started out as the financial backer. And in 2017, I decided to step in and become the chairman and CEO when it needed a slight change in direction. And since that time, we've been completing all of our environmental studies. We've spent well over $400 million on better understanding this environment from an, an environment perspective and also a resource definition. And we expect to be ready to pick up rocks, receive our permit uh, at the end of 2025 and be making battery metals to put into the marketplace.
1: So how does this work? You're four thousand meters down, and you're picking up metals like they're golf balls on a driving range. Yeah, where's it go? You pick it up. Now, what's the process to get it all the way up to your ship?
0: Well, firstly, this resource just delivers some advantages that are very unique. You know, it's located in the abyssal zone, and Half of our planet is categorized as the abyssal zone, and it's it's an area below four thousand meters. It's an area where there are no plants, so zero flora. It's an area where I would liken it to a marine desert. If in fact there's only one ecosystem that has less biomass, and that's that's ice, polar ice. So, you know, I always say, Mike, that if we would have locate a large abundant resource anywhere on the planet surely we should put it somewhere where there is the least life not the most life and so this categorizes as you know the second least populated ecosystem on our planet in fact if we measure the amount of biomass there's about 10 grams of biomass per square meter and most of that is bacteria and so what we do is we put a robot on the seafloor that crawls along picking up these nodules, think of them like golf balls on a driving range. And we then put them into a vertical transport system, which is we know as an air riser. So that pumps it to the production vessel. And we then offload the nodules to a transport ship. Once the hull is getting full, Uh, that would, once we're in production, that'll be every few days. And that transporter will then move the nodules to shore where they'll be processed into battery metals.
1: So when you bring these nodules to shore and you start to process them, what percent of what you bring up, you get to use versus doing disposing of it?
0: Great question. Another great unique characteristic of this resource is that these nodules, I hold one in my hand, um, think of them about the size of a potato, but we're able to use 100% of the mass of the material. That means we turn it all into saleable product. So no waste and no tailings. And the reason for that is we only have trace uh, record of deleterious elements. So none of those nasty arsenic or mercury that on land based ore bodies require you to have these enormous tailings ponds. So we turn 100% of it into saleable product, which is a real game changer for the industry.
1: I should say so. Can you give me some examples of? uh... The pr- once you've sold it to market, what it does in the market, what what's it going towards?
0: Well, about half of our revenue comes from nickel and the other products, are copper, cobalt and manganese. Now, the reason why nickel is such a topical metal at the moment is because all of the growth and I mean 100 percent of the growth in nickel production is coming from underneath our rainforests. Nickel is used as a hardening material to make stainless steel, but it's also the key ingredient in electric vehicle batteries. You'll often hear the term NMC, uh, nickel manganese cobalt. And that basically means that the high performance electric vehicle batteries, cathodes, are very rich in nickel. In fact, on average, they'll have up to 60 kilograms of nickel per battery. So we need a lot more of it. And even though some batteries are being made without nickel, we're talking about a market that is booming in size because high-performance cars, pickup cars, semi-trucks, boats, planes are all likely to use nickel-rich chemistries. And so somewhere we've got to get a new supply of them. And at the moment, a lot of that is coming from rainforest. In fact, all of it's coming from rainforest nickel, from countries like Indonesia, the Philippines, New Caledonia. And unfortunately, to get to that nickel-bearing ore, you have to remove the rainforest and everything that lives in it, which is a lot of biodiversity, which includes Indigenous communities, people that have lived there for centuries, and we're just encroaching on their space to be able to mine this nickel. So we have to rethink the supply, and we have to be looking at, a, at the full range of impacts of where those metals came from and what was the true environmental and human cost?
1: Well, speaking of cost, uh, how does your cost to market with your product compare to that cost of market uh, that's coming out of the rainforest? Is that where there's going to be the rubber meets the road and people say, well, it's cheaper out of the rainforest, but you then say, well, it's better for the the our environment and for society if it comes out of the ocean instead of doing all the damage to the natural rainforest and the indigenous people that are sitting there.
0: No, we expect we will operate in the bottom quartile of the cost curve. And I do, however, believe that over time that there will be a premium paid for ocean metals from polymetallic nodules because of those lower those lower environmental costs. And you know, we see these carbon equalization measures that governments are implementing. We see the battery passport initiatives that are being implemented, and you know, I I really do hope that they're successful because that what they will do is account for the full environmental cost, the carbon cost, the biodiversity cost of producing those metals, and they'll apply taxes or tariffs to them as a result. Whereas in our case, we are able to measure all of those impacts, and we know that. We can reduce tailings to zero, waste to zero. We can reduce uh, the full range of CO2 impacts by up to 90%. We only use a fraction of the amount of water. We don't impact on freshwater ecosystems because of the no waste and tailings. So, And of course, there are no impact on, on indigenous communities. And the other great thing about the abyssal zone is there's no alternative competing use for it. We're not trying to grow things there. People aren't living there. And so it's an ideal place to be extracting these metals from.
1: Well, you know, it it seems to me with everybody uh, interested in bettering their sustainability score with regards to uh, their ESG score and their sustainability reports that they put in their annual reports for the, the, because they're a publicly traded company, using your product seems to naturally score better than those that would take it out of the rainforest. So anybody conscious of their sustainability standing, I'd have to think would be more in favor of these ocean-based
0: metals. Yes, but you know, one of the one of the horrible things that has crept into society is the virtue signaling that goes on. You know, and we we see that from some customers, you know, they're they're like, oh we we don't we don't want to touch ocean metals until there's more uh, science or more understanding, of course, the logical question then would be, okay, well, tell me about the science. Um, And so, you know, we've seen a lot of corporations uh, be able to manipulate those metrics, right? I mean, you've got some of the major oil companies who score much better on the ESG rating standards than companies like Tesla, (laughs) go and figure that out. And so, you know, I don't think those systems are pure, but if, as I always say to people, if we apply the pub test to this, well, where do you think the lower impact is from picking it up from the abyssal zone on the ocean floor or removing the rainforest and digging up some nickel ore to, to look for that material? It's a pretty easy answer.
1: It is a pretty easy answer. And, you know, um, I've got to ask this question because I live in Houston and you're in Vancouver. Is that correct?
0: We're based in Vancouver, yes. Yeah. um,
1: We've been seeing a lot of things in our newspaper about the offshore wind production and what's yeah. going on on the East Coast. And they're talking about, you know, there's a lot of people that are afraid of what's it doing to the fisheries uh, with the, the wind turbines and everything in the ocean, being buried in the ocean and, and operating. And there's a real tug of war going on with regards to that taking place on the East Coast. Are you facing some of those same issues? And is there any impact on the natural ocean ecosystem with what you're doing?
0: The great news about where we operate is we're picking up these nodules at around 4,200 meters below sea level. And so as we, as many people should know, that fish, let's think of tuna and the likes, don't operate below 300 meters. Uh, they'll sometimes dive down a couple hundred meters deeper and they'll sometimes feed on on uh, crustaceans or shrimp that will go up to a thousand meters below sea level. But they really live in that top two to 300 meters below sea level. And so we've had some people try and say, but you're gonna impact the migration path of tuna or you're gonna impact the the tuna stock, which is total nonsense. And of course there have been many independent studies by very credible organizations that are all peer reviewed, which confirm that, but it doesn't stop people speculating. And, And, you know, but if I look at offshore wind, I can imagine that that potentially does have an impact on bird life and fish because of they're operating in that top 200 meters of the ocean surface. Uh, But we should also keep in mind that the fishing industry itself is pretty impactful when it comes to marine life. And, you know, every year around 5 million square kilometers of seafloor is impacted by seafloor trawling. Every year, about 6 billion tons of sand is dredged from our oceans. So you know, the notion that our oceans are being untouched by by civilization is, is nonsense. Um, but the good news about our project, Mike, is that where we operate, and even we do return some water that we use in the transport mechanism because our robot picks up the nodules, we separate out the sediment on the seafloor, and, and the good news about that sediment is it stays there. It only rises about two metres Above the seafloor, because the particles tend to flocculate together and they they just stay there. They don't rise up any higher than that. And of course, last year we were out to sea for six months with our collector, with a full end-to-end trial. And we had another boat out there with uh, more than eighty people on it, many of them scientists observing those impacts. So, so what we've been doing is funding real science programs. By independent institutions who can help us provide the evidence to be able to make those assumptions. But so far, doesn't no impact on fish.
1: That's terrific. And that's a great answer that you gave to my question. So thank you for that, Jared. Uh, when you talked about your uh, your apparatus on the ground at uh, the bottom of the ocean that's gathering all these little nodules up, okay? Since we're a podcast that's sound only, first, kind of be like a color commentator trying to describe something on a radio baseball game or football game. Tell us exactly how that takes place. How? What's the size of it? How big is it? Is it operated like a drone up from the ship so you're watching everything happen? Kind of walk us through that process and paint that picture for us uh, as to what that looks like and how long does it stay down on the bottom?
0: Yeah. Well, think of it as a uh, remote-controlled robot at the moment, but in time, these robots will be managed from shore. You know, we have about 125 people on our our first production uh, vessel, the Hidden Gem. And if you go to our website, which is metals.co, you'll see a heap of videos of us and the collector trials that were happening last year. But if I wind, wind forward five to 10 years those boats will be very different. You know, they'll be purpose-built, they'll have only a handful of people on board, and a lot of the activities will be, uh, you know, operated from shore or uh, r- r- robotically. And so we drop the robot on the seafloor. It, it's about 100 tonnes out of the water, but when we put it into the water with buoyancy, it goes to less than 10 tonnes, and one of our challenges is keeping it on the floor. You know, we've got to be really mindful of of uh, keeping it there. So a lot of the weight goes out of it. And as it crawls along the seafloor, we are able to collect the nodules through a uh, through a lifting process. It's known as the Coanda effect. And we fire a jet of water at these nodules, which it creates an inverse pressure and it lifts the nodule. So we don't go down there and churn the seafloor up. And there'll be images on our website of how that happens. And, and then we have a big straw, which is the vertical transport system that connects it to the production vessel. Now, now we anticipate that we'll be in production 270 days of the year and the production boat stays out there. It'll go back to shore every six or so years for reclassification and some servicing. But I guess an analogy would be when you harvest a paddock of wheat, you know, you've got your harvester driving along, the bin fills up, the, The trailer comes alongside, you empty the bin, but the harvester keeps going. And that will be our production environment. So we're constantly just moving on very slowly, picking up these nodules. And you'll see images on our website, they really do just lie on the ocean floor. We don't have to drill or dig to get to them. So it's an amazing gift that this resource delivers us because it has a big impact on reducing the environmental impact so it's, it's and, and I'd like to say that it's groundbreaking technology, but actually this problem was solved 50 years ago. 50 years ago, they started picking up these very same nodules and they solved many of the engineering challenges. But the reason why it didn't go ahead and the United Nations stepped in and stopped it was because 50 years ago, the world had not agreed Who owned the oceans? The world had not agreed, where do my borders begin and end? But that was all settled once UNCLOS was signed, which is the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. And so that's why now is such an interesting time because uh, the rules are in place. The final piece of the regulations will drop into place in the next, uh, in the coming months. And that's what will allow us to move from the exploration phase into the exploitation phase. So it's a very exciting time for the industry. I guess if we think about uh, the analogy of offshore oil and gas, once upon a time, no oil and gas came offshore. But once the technical challenges were solved, now more than 30% of oil and gas comes offshore. And I think it could be even more when it comes to the metals of cobalt and nickel and manganese. And so, but the good news is they're all concentrated in this one patch known as the Clarion clipperton zone, discovered more than 150 years ago. So all the pieces have been there. And now we're the lucky company who's been moving it towards first production. And we expect that we'll be collecting these rocks and uh, under our license by the end of 2025. So it's a a very exciting time for the company and for the industry.
1: And again, that location is in the Pacific Ocean between Mexico and Hawaii, roughly. Is that for a picture? Is that about where it's
0: at? The closest land mass is uh, is the coast of Mexico, maybe San Diego, which we often use as our um, our disembarkment port, which is about a four and a half day sail, about 1,100 nautical miles.
1: Wow. And so... You know, everybody, we have big aspirations around the world about being 100% green by 2050. Mm. That's going to involve a lot of EV vehicles to be on the road everywhere, not just in the United States, but everywhere. Mm. So, you know, the nickel and cobalt and the copper and the manganese and all that, all that's going to be needed for that to be achieved. So what you're trying to accomplish and bring to market has a real place and a real value so congratulations for your venture on that you should be very very proud of what you're doing
0: thanks thank you very much and I, I i've got to say i there's it's an amazing team of people that i've assembled around this opportunity you know we've taken people that have been at the peak of their career working for either the big mining companies BHP and Rio or or working for the oil and gas industry, or in their own careers of finance, but very much at the peak of their their career, and they've all come to this project because of the mission, because of the importance of it, because of the they. In some cases, they know the impact of land-based mining. They know that there's got to be a better way. And getting a new industry started is very, very challenging, but wow, it's exciting as well.
1: Well, hats off to you and to your team. You'd be very proud. And uh, thank you so much for joining me on the Green Insider today. I enjoyed the conversation immensely.
0: Thanks, Mike. Pleasure to be with you. Today.
1: Yes, sir. A pleasure to be with you. This is Mike Neemer, and you've been listening to the Green Insider, Power Bay Renewable. Thank you for your time, and enjoy the rest of your week.
0: This podcast was sponsored by Position Green. For an introduction to our sponsor, or find out how you too could be a sponsor, refer to our show notes to contact eRenewable and the Green Insider Podcast.